The Performance Lab podcast is invested in the sharing of knowledge and cultivation of curiosity between makers. We invite guest artists to lead a workshop with the MFA candidates of Sarah Lawrence College, after which we interview them. We ask questions tailored to their individual practice, delving deeper into the how and the why of creation. Inspiration is all around us, but how do we hone in on the subjects that drive us? They share with us their tips, tricks, and sources of inspiration, reflect on past performances and projects, and keep us up to date with what's next. Stay tuned for the Performance Lab podcast. Well, hi, everyone. My name's Kate Manson. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm the director of the theater program. Um, welcome to our last Think Tank of the Year. It's also our SLC performance podcast, performance lab podcast. Um, we're very excited to host Kate Bornstein today. They'll be interviewed by our graduate theater director, Dan Herlin. Kate is an author, playwright, performer, and thought leader. They publish many books on gender, written and toured their plays, lectured across the country, and has performed on many stages and screen, including Broadway last season, I think. Kate, it's such a pleasure and honor to host you today. And now I will turn it over to Kate and Dan. Thank you, Kaden. So Kate, a little bit, let's, let's keep talking about what we were just talking about before we got formally introduced, which was the Holly Hughes play, uh, No Trace of the Blonde, which is where I first met you. I was called in to direct it and you played Mrs. Dujour and <laughs> Dominic DeBell played Chevy Dujour, your daughter. And um, that was how I first met you. And it was such an amazing experience to be making theater with you. What are your memories of it? My first name as, uh, as a character was Cliché. Cliché, you were, <laughs> you were such a good director. You just, you let us go. I remember one time I had this monologue about meat. Oh, yeah. She rapturizes about meat and I and I started singing and you went, go there, go there, go sing, sing, sing. <laughs> meat, I love the meat. And I was singing and you were just clapping and so. It's wonderful. Now, that was when I first met you, but you have this long career, not only of doing your own solo material, but also writing plays, full-blown full plays, as well as acting and other stuff. Can you talk a little bit about how you started making theater? I think I started when I was like a little itty bitty kid, six, seven years old and pretending I was a boy. Um, I mean, I at that point figured I was a girl, but no one was agreeing with me. And so make-believe became my life. And I had to figure out how to be boy the way other people would like me to be boy. And to me, it was pretending and never felt it was working, but people did believe me. And this gave me a talent that I was using in theater. Later, grown up, I just, acting became my favorite thing to do. It's such a full body, full mind experience. For me, even more so than um, playwriting or scene design, which I've done, I actually enjoy uh, stage handing more than I just enjoy designing or directing. Because again, it's full body. You're there and you've got cues and you're interacting and it's like, ah, yes. How did you find your way into solo theater making? In 1989, Congress at the behest of, uh, is it North Carolina Senator Jesse Helms? South Carolina. North, uh, well, he, yeah, Jesse Helms. Yeah. Jesse Helms. 
led the fight to defund the National Endowment of the Arts because the NEA was funding a great amount of queer theater. At that point, there was what we called the Lavender Network. There were like maybe a dozen and a half theaters around the U.S. that were doing regular queer work and were bringing people in. Um, I was touring a three-person show with a stage manager at that time, uh, a show called Hidden Agenda, and all of a sudden the money got ripped away. They weren't funding artists anymore, they weren't funding theaters. And the only way you could do theater was by shrinking it down to solo work and that's pretty much what I did and then we would tour based on a cut of the door. Surely you didn't continue to do uh, solo theater for a cut of the door. It must have... <laughs> oh, you did! <laughs> Quite recently, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. That's good for you. And so that's how you, why you sort of entered into solo theater. and. Did you find that uh, in the solo form in particular, or maybe not, I don't know, that it, it provided for you a, a, a stronger um, uh, medium for your activism? I don't consider that I do activism. I don't consider myself to be an activist. <laughs> the way I like to word it that's most comfortable for me is that the art that I do make is in service to activism. So I never considered that any of my theater was activist theater, per se. I know that, for example, I wanted to give voice to five or six different kinds of trans people. I didn't want it to all be, you know, male to female transsexuals. And so one of my earliest solo pieces was about a goddess in training who had to channel different people who were neither one way or the other. And so she channeled a male to female, a female to male, a drag queen, a drag king, all different kinds, a non-binary. She channeled these. And, and so I tried to give voice to an abundance of people. It's funny that you, um, you mentioned Hidden Agenda. Uh, Justin Vivian Bond, has said that being in that play changed their life. And I asked my friend, Brian Selznick, and he did a, he did a really amazing toy theater piece uh, based on the Christine Jorgensen story. And, and you gave him permission to use a little section of Hidden Agenda, which I have here. And I'll read just a little bit of it because I think it's just so unbelievably brilliant. It's in a classroom and, uh, <laughs> and it starts uh, with, Pronouns and gender. If you're giving the lesson on pro pronouns and gender. It's very important to use the correct pronoun to refer to the correct person. Stop snickering in the back row. All right, I'm only gonna say this once, so you better take notes. I'm not gonna repeat myself. Pronouns and gender, I has no gender. Neither does you. <laughs> it, se it seems, so what I love about it is, is that it's so profound and that the scene goes on um, unpacking the sort of the linguistic problems that gender or that, that, um, that gender um, <laughs> produces. But it's so, it's so profound what you've written. And at the same time, 
completely hilarious. And I love that you have the ability to combine those two seemingly disparate um, modes of being or modes of working. Can you talk a little bit about how you use gender? I mean, how you use um, humor in, in your work? The first step on that was understanding that people were going to laugh at me, period, <laughs> on the street. Uh, I remember early on in my gender transition, um, I appeared to the world to be a grown man in a dress. <laughs> people would laugh at me. They would point and they would laugh. And this filled me with sorrow and rage. And utilizing theater, I could make you laugh. I could use what I've got. You want funny? I'll show you really funny. And I could use wordplay to make you laugh. I could do other physical bits to make you laugh but you wouldn't laugh at the nature of who I am or the way I'm learning how to express myself. That was cruelty. And I, 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 I steered away from that, obviously, as much as I could. But accepting that there's a whole lot of humor in the trans experience was novel. Trans was very serious in this to this day. Don't laugh about that. That's not funny. Yes, it is. It's pretty goddamn funny, you know. And, and owning that bit of it, that there's a great deal of comedy involved in transgender. And that allowed me to, to laugh. Yeah. Well, that, that's amazing. That, that's wonderful. So, I mean, now that, now that the, the pandemic has set itself upon us, you were saying earlier this morning how um, a lot has fallen through. You know that you, you had all these gigs lined up, and and that this is the only one that, <laughs> that survived. <laughs> so, how in in the face of that, how do you stay creative? How are you negotiating this lockdown and still being a creative person? It's not very successful. I'm not very successful at it. I I, I have very dark days, doing a lot of edibles, which is. <laughs> Not all that good for me, and certainly not all that good for my mood. Um, pretty good for my creativity, though. Yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. Uh, you know, I'm I'm finding the same, and I and I would imagine that a lot of people are in the same boat. It's very, it's just very difficult to to feel like you're a creative person when you're in isolation. And yet, the right as a writer. I'm in isolation when I write. So how come I haven't been able to sit down and write? Um, because it's a pretty depressing situation that we're all in. Mm -hmm. um, thank goodness for the few online gigs that I have like this one, which forced me to focus and stop eating the edibles for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> I get something down and be able to communicate it without falling over my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> I'm finding that I'm losing weight. Lucky me. So uh, one other question that I have for you, do you have any advice to give to any of our um, gender nonconforming students or our trans students as they go out and start to make work and make work in the world? Yeah. 
that just keep working at it, just keep trying. There are more and more opportunities for trans and non gender nonconforming roles now in theater. Um, I got a role on Broadway because playwright Young Jean Lee wanted a non-binary gender person to play this role. Didn't want a trans woman, I'm not that. Um, and all of a sudden, there I was on fucking Broadway. It will come. I'm not going to say get a day job because this is your job. This is your life's work. Keep doing it. Do it for each other. Do solo work if you need to do solo work. That's, that's what I did. I just kept doing solo work on and on and on. For, I've been doing it for 30 years. And eventually someone who saw that cast me in this role, cast me in that role. It will it take you 30 years. It's, the world is in a much better place now for, for trans and non-conforming. Don't give up. It will get better, I swear. That's great. And I, one last question for everyone else. Do you have any advice for everyone about approaching gender? I mean, you, you, were, you were incredibly amazing this morning in the grad lab talk, um, which was incredibly, uh, very complicated and looking at gender and how we perceive it. And, and I'm wondering if there's a, a quick little, like a bite-sized nugget that you can give people before we open it up to questions. Okay. <laughs> the way I'm looking at gender now is gender is a construct. Uh, this, by the way, is theory. That means it could be a big fat lie. Gender is a construct constructed of three parts. Body plus mind plus space-time. Right? Definitely your body, definitely your mind, but always moving through time and space. If you can acknowledge that your gender is in constant motion through time and space, and that it's always changing moment to moment to moment to moment, no matter whether you trans or cis or whatever the words for it are, your gender is changing moment to moment. Always we learn, oh, this is a good way to be a man. Oh, this is a good way to be a woman. Oh, I could do that. Oh, I could dress like this. We're always learning and trying out, well, that doesn't work. We're trying out all kinds of stuff and changing and changing and growing. What causes us to suffer about gender is clutching at some constant, grasping and clutching at some constant of gender as if gender existed all by itself and we could embrace the perfect. There's no such thing. It's always in motion and it's always changing. Acknowledging that helps a great, great deal. That's so beautiful and completely memorable. Thank you so much. Now, um, I think we have just time to open it up um, to viewers for questions. If anyone has a question for Kate, um, we would love to know what it is. Um, my name is Casey. I'm non-binary. Um, and my question is, how in the world does one, after like, like how does one not get pigeonholed as trans artist? Because I feel like so many times once you're like recognizable enough, you look enough like a non-binary person, suddenly they're like, oh, but you wouldn't take women roles. Oh, but you wouldn't take male roles. I'm like, I didn't say that. I'm nothing. So like, how do you avoid getting stuck in a rut that you didn't necessarily ask for? Great question. <laughs> because, well, once people see you doing one thing, that's all they'll cast you as. That's, that's always been the history of theater in today's like 21st century. They see you do something. 
they expect you to do more of the same. I shifted that by doing solo work where you couldn't put your finger on me what I was doing. You know, one moment I'd be doing this, another moment I'd be doing that. And, you know, I'd be doing different characters and let people see me do different characters. Like if you're going to have, if you're going to have an audition reel, if you're going to have a reel, let it be of you doing different pieces. Just work out different kinds of auditions so that they can see you. I, I was cast in The Blacklist, of all things. Um, NBC's The Blacklist up, up against James Spader. And I created this wacky, wacky character who all she wanted to do was find out, is that real? And she was just a wacky character like that. And I know now that people seeing me do that will think that's all I do. Oh, it was a big mistake. But um, I've got a movie coming out where I'm playing the same, oh, the gentle, kind, trans woman. <laughs> <laughs> I, I keep getting cast in that and I wanted to mix it up. You have to mix it up and show people what you can do. Yeah. Thank you. Mm. I'm still, I'm just looking at this, um, this text from the hidden agenda. It goes on, uh, it says um, pronouns and gender. I has no gender, neither does you. He and she definitely have a gender, a specific gender, which is very helpful to all of us because we doesn't have a gender either, does we? <laughs> so good. Hi, uh, I'm Gil. Uh, I use they, them pronouns. And it's, uh, it's always very inspiring to see um, artists who have, non-binary artists who have been able to make their way in this crazy industry world. Um, uh, what I wanted to ask about was specifically get that idea that you were talking about, about impermanence and sort of ever changing and uh, fluidity and how for you and, uh, or, and how, or how you think for artists in general, how that relates to the type of work you produce um, and like your sort of uh, I don't, I don't want to say style because that's also changing, but like, I, I, how do you, because I, I feel a lot when I'm, <laughs> the work that I want to create is very ever-changing and, and fluid and changes on a, from day to day. And how do you sort of develop like what you're promoting if it's always changing? Does that make sense? It does. Okay. It does. Um, I've written books. I've written about seven books and I hate it because once you write it, it's in stone and you can't change it. Um, two of my books, thank God I was able to completely redo their second editions of two of my books. Um, fortunately, it's not that way with acting, but it is if it's film or television, because once it's nailed down, that's what it is. There's not even much language. I, I noticed you grasping for words. And what if my work is changing and, and how do I, we don't even know how to talk about a life or a work that's constantly changing. This is something that you are going to pioneer. This is cool. never been done before. If there's such a thing as being reborn into a new life, which I kind of believe in, you're going to be my role model for having figured it out. I'm a pioneer by saying, hey, it's possible. But I don't know how. You're, you're right. 
is to figure out how. That's, that's, that's the best I can do, baby. Thank you. Wait, we both have questions. Okay, our first, our first question is not a question, but a statement. We just wanted to say that we like your lip piercing a lot. It's sick. Oh. <laughs> Again, the second one is a real question. Go ahead. Oh, um, earlier when, when you were talking about the, the, I think it was the three facets of, of gender, um, you, the third one was time and space. Could you um, talk a little more to that? The word I used is space time, one word. Uh, which is a concept that was developed by Albert Einstein, who understood that space doesn't exist without time, and time doesn't exist without space. If you mess around with space, you affect time, and if you mess around with time, you affect space. So it is called space-time. Gender, we generally think of as, or the world has until now, always thought about gender as your body period. Over the last hundred years, people are more and more coming to understand that gender also includes your mind, all right? You know, what you think about it, how you label it, how you, you decide your imagination, all these mind factors. And so now we've got people thinking about gender as body plus mind. Good way, but not complete. Why? Because body plus mind have to exist in time. I'll, I'll split up the words, in time and space constantly moving through time and through space so that presenting your gender in Hell's Kitchen in New York in the old days is very different than presenting your gender in a small town restaurant when you're the only non-binary thing that they've ever seen. Your space, space affects the way you do gender. Time affects the way you do gender. We even have words for it. You've been a boy or a girl and now you're a man or a woman, or we can say you were a child and now you're an adult, but there are both words that indicate the passage of time that none of us want to acknowledge. We want to say, no, 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 it's all here, it's all now. No, it's not, no, it's not. We get old, our bodies change, we're capable of doing this in the theater, we're capable of doing that. Time changes things, space changes things. This online space changes the way I act. It's, it's a space. Does that, does that more clear? Yes, thank you. You, you know, you, you brought up another thing this morning that was so incredibly beautiful, which was the, the, um, the idea of eloquence. And when you relate it to gender, it becomes a really beautiful, beautiful thought. Can you, can you speak about that just a little bit? I was talking to Grad Lab about the Tibetan Buddhist definition of eloquence. Eloquence being based in wisdom and compassion because they define eloquence as the telling of a truth in such a way that it eases suffering. That's eloquence. That requires profound wisdom, vast compassion, because the more suffering that is eased by your telling of a truth, the more eloquent you've been. Now, how that applies to gender, I'm thinking that the only thing you can kind of say about gender that can't be argued is that gender is relative to context and point of view. That's definitive. Everything else is arguable. So you might as well choose an arguable truth of gender that eases suffering for most people, including, and most importantly, yourself. That's what we all do. We hang on to a truth of gender because it eases our suffering. 
including people who believe there are two genders that absolutely always have been. Why? That gives people a sense of confidence, a sense that, oh, things aren't going to change. I'm always going to be a man. I'm always going to be a woman. And that eases suffering for some people. Jerks like me come around and say, no, no, gender is anything you fucking want it to be. And they go, oh, no, it's not. Um, that's not easing anybody's suffering very much. So we figure a different way of saying, gender is anything you want so that it doesn't hurt people. Your expression of gender, the way you talk about gender and present gender, needs must be eloquent. Needs must be a truth that eases suffering. I just, uh, I was in grad lab earlier. I think you're wonderful. And I cannot wait to read all your books. But I was hoping maybe if, I was just wondering if there's a way that we can access any of your solo work, if we can watch some of that. I don't think so. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, you know, I, I keep. I'm after my my ex, David Harrison, uh, has it. You know, on Super Eight. Uh, I don't know that he's digitized. <laughs> so I should contact David Harrison. We <laughs> <laughs> had a, a run at La Mama a couple of years back. I'm doing a now. Um, a solo show called uh, Kate Bornstein on Men, Women, and the Rest of Us. And it's a kind of a raconteur kind of show. That's someplace online. Probably look through La Mama or Google on Men, Women, and the Rest of Us in quotation marks. I think that's up around someplace. Okay, thank you so much. How about you, Kate? Do you have any questions? I want to know what it's like to be in your position, here you are about to go out into the professional world and there's a fucking pandemic. What's giving you the strength to move to the next place? I would appreciate any answers like that because I need to know. Hi, um, my name is Teresa Rochoki. Um, I'm non-binary, I'm streaming at the moment from Finland where I'm quarantining. Take a minute to like, I'm trying to find a way how I can um, express my question somehow like concisely. But basically, I was interested in the fact that given that you've oscillated between an academic space and a theater art space around um, gender identity, gender um, theory and performativity, I was wondering if you had noticed either differences or points of overlapping in how these sort of different spaces think of gender or rather like discuss gender identity. Because myself, like both academic spaces and performance art spaces like sort of interest me equally, but I do understand that both of those things are quite niche and yet they intersect like a lot. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. Good one. This is kind of illustrates what I was talking about how gender is dependent on space and time. A performance space or an academic space is more welcoming of non-binary, gender non-conforming, gender queer, agender. Uh, but you start talking like that on Broadway or off Broadway, because what are you talking about? Or network television, what, what, what? It would take an independent film, it would take some weird cable TV or made for web series. Uh, these are the new performance spaces. 
And now that Broadway's closed, <laughs> that's what you've got. So there's going to be an ascendancy of web drama, web performance, and alternate performance. And I think that's going to open a lot of doors. But no, there's no way to get to force someone to agree that you're non-binary because the concept is completely foreign. You might as well say you're a farm animal. People go, what? <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? It's not part of the language yet. The culture doesn't think beyond binaries very much because once you start thinking beyond a binary, you're admitting paradox. Uh, I ran into this one in the 80s. I began calling myself not man, not woman. That was a paradox. Well, what are you? I'm defining myself by what I'm not. I'm not a man. I'm not a woman. Whoa, 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 whoa. What are you? <laughs> People now have a word for it, non-binary. Ah, okay. You are non-binary. Yeah, but what does that really mean? It means I'm not a man and I'm not a woman. What are you? This culture doesn't understand the absence of an identity, doesn't understand the fluidity of identity yet. Your existence and performance as non-binary is going to open that door. So thank you. Uh, as I said to the other person, you're going to pioneer that stuff. Thank you. Uh, I also had another question, if I can ask. Um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts, observations, notes, hot takes on sort of um, the last 10 years of trans activism and how that has sort of shaped uh, uh, dialogues or public dialogues, rather, I would say, uh, around gender and trans rights and gender non-conformance um, because you already sort of pointed at like you know how it was like in the 80s and 90s and obviously anyone who's somewhat worse first in any queer history knows that there's like a sort of history and trajectory and things change and words change and concepts change and attitudes change but what about the period of like 2010 to 2020 or even 2000s to 2010 like because that's still recent and yet like in the 2000s like it's been 20 years now like it's it it's a lot of time <laughs> activism tends to get measured by moments of conflict moments of crisis and since the passage of gay marriage let's say uh there hasn't been that much of a universally understood conflict there's been the rise, since gay marriage, there's been the rise of trans rights. But not everybody was fighting that. And so that goes off to the side someplace. A big crisis got introduced in 2016, and that was the election of Trump. And now we're starting to measure activism against the Trump era. That got trumped by the pandemic. And now the pandemic trumps Trump. And we're going to be measuring activism against this pandemic and what we all did to deal with it. But there are moments of downtime where a lot of people don't, aren't aware that any activism is occurring at all. Humanity's never been really in the position to be so universally in touch with each other as we are today. 
we're still feeling our way around to be in touch with each other without being in each other's physical presence. We're still feeling our way through that. Uh, that's relatively new since the internet, which is what, the 90s? There's only been an internet since then? I think a lot of the activism has happened online that hasn't been acknowledged. So does that speak to what you're, you're, you're getting at or no? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I don't even know what I'm getting at, but that was really interesting. Thank you. <laughs> Hello. First, I just want to say thank you so much for doing this for us. Um, let's hope my question makes sense. I'm really interested in what you were saying about eloquence and finding ways to do and say things without hurting people. Because one thing that I've been struggling with personally and just sort of putting a lot of thought into lately is that so much theater is really painful especially so much of the successful theater outside of farces and musicals and sort of the pieces that people tend to go see and people are very interested in i don't know some wonder if doing those kind of shows is always sort of justified or if there's a good enough reason to do that when it comes to say putting on a really triggering show from a hundred years ago to sort of reclaim it without actually doing anything different, for example. For example, give me an example of a doing a triggering show from a hundred years ago, please. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm super out of it right now. Birth of a Nation? Uh, that's a good one, yeah. Okay. Uh, is there value in it? I think so. We get a picture of where we've been. Is there value? Let's, let's bring it down to the individual level. Before Theater is macro, and let's take it down to micro, an individual level. Because gender exists in space and time, I'm seeing gender as a continuum. I'm 72 years old. That means my gender is 72 years. It comprises 72 years. Do I want to talk about the times when I was a really stupid jerk of a guy? No, but sometimes I need to in order to illustrate a point. If I can take that bit of Kate was a jerk insisting that I has no gender, neither does you, then it plays. We've positioned this jerk as a jerk. We screen Birth of a Nation Look what we don't want to repeat. Look what people were, now, 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 now. What were they doing here? Who were they? Look at, look at how they were wounding, not only racially, but also um, gender-wise, but also age. If you look closely in that movie, it's not just a racial thing. Maybe that, it's all about patriarchy, uh, which is parallel to race and depends on racism for its existence. And you can analyze that in that film. And so there's a value to it. But would you just turn it on and, and, and surprise people? No, no, you would give it a context. And say, what I'm about to show you is nothing that could be made today and frankly doesn't belong in today's viewing, but gives us a good picture of our past. Uh, is that what we're talking about or is there something else? I'm sorry, I 
I'm still thinking out how to phrase what I'm mm-hmm. trying to ask. Um, I'm going to go ahead and use a recent movie as an example because uh, it's not quite theater, but I think it's a really good example of this. Uh, take, for instance, the movie Uncut Gems. Why does something like that exist? Uh-huh. It's sort of, I feel theater is very political, but a lot of the time it feels uh, pieces that I've seen feel a lot like that as well, where it really is just sort of very anxiety driven and kind of out there for the sake of being out there and kind of torture porny. I don't know the film. There's ugh. entertainment is a factor in theater. And some people prize entertainment above all else. And it can't, you know, uh, feeding Christians to the lions was entertaining. <laughs> get it. Why? Well, it was entertaining. Um, we could laugh at people suffering in pain because we weren't suffering and in pain. Well, that persists to this day. Is that a good reason to do it? No, it's a good reason not to do it. But that hasn't been learned. Why? Because people will buy tickets to that. That does answer <laughs> the question that I still haven't sort of figured out. Thank you very much. Hi. Uh, I wanted to speak to your question that you had about um, what it's like going into the world of theater and entertainment and like jumping right into that world as a, as a young adult in the middle of a pandemic. And I just kind of wanted to speak to like what I've sort of been focusing on that has been helping me with that. Um, I think right now, uh, well, I've heard I've heard a lot of people talking about like productivity and and you touched on this a little bit earlier, just like how we feel like we should be doing things because we have all this time. And what I've kind of come to at peace with is doing the things that come up naturally in this in this time and being able to reflect on things in the moment and whatever like comes out of that in the moment I can keep and not necessarily have to share with the world. Um, And then when, you know, when hopefully this comes out a little better on in in six months or whatever that like being reunited with with those people that I did that I love to do theater with like having that sort of surge of energy that will happen when we are all reunited I think will create some really cool stuff that we can then pull what we've created during this time in isolation from and share it with people. Thank you. This brings to mind two principles Thank you for, for saying it so well. The, the principle of Sabbath and the principle of a fallow field. Um, Sabbath is built into most religions, most guidance for life. Take some time down to just let yourself be. Let that field rest a little bit before you keep planting and planting and planting and use up all the nutrients in it. We're not used to that, especially in Western ways of thinking. We're not used to what you said of letting it just be me and waiting till there is a time when it can um, sprout. Your work is now the seed sprouting through the ground. It hasn't poked its head up out of the the ground yet. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Hello. Uh, I had a question about uh, more like the industry. like, what do you think about um, trans actors of any sort being like cast as characters that are not specifically or explicitly 
Um, trans, do you think there's a certain trajectory that the industry is heading in that regard or? Trans actors being cast as? Uh, characters that are not explicitly trans, like being considered for just like other characters. Do you think there's a certain way the industry is going in that regard or I don't know? I've, I've been cast in three roles like that. Um, there's a movie called Saturday Church in which I play a very warm, friendly uh, church lady taking care of street kids. Um, there's another movie coming out called Two Eyes in which I play a warm, friendly um, head of the LGBTQ center in Laramie. And there's a movie, there's a, there's a play uh, called the Chonburi International Hotel and Butterfly Club, which is not premiering in Williamstown Theater Festival this summer, and cast as a warm, friendly astrophysicist. The first two are not particularly gender specific. And the last one was, but I was also cast in this NBC thing I've been talking about uh, on Blacklist, was not a gender specific or transgender specific. Uh, character. I think that's kind of cool because trans people walk through the world without saying, hey, I'm trans. Uh, and if they, they walk through a production, they don't necessarily say, hey, I'm trans. I like that I get cast as roles that are not gender specific and never actually refer to gender. It's a good question. It is it's a certain kind of role. And yes, audiences will be left with, what was that? Was that a man or was that a woman? I don't know what the word Fine. Other people will go, hey, look, a transgender person who just happens to be there in the film. Great. I like it. I like that. It, do you have an objection to that kind of casting? Or I just didn't know if there, if you thought there was getting to be, um, no, I think it's definitely a good thing. I just didn't know if you thought there was getting to be more of it in recent years, or if that's a way that the industry is headed. Like, I, yeah, I definitely think that's a good thing. I just uh, wanted to know what your take on if the industry was changing in any way regarding that. Yeah, it, it has happened with race. We, we've, we've cast parts racially that don't refer to the person's race, and that's kind of cool, and now it's happening to gender. Um, so I, I like it. I like it. It, it. In a way, it's normalizing what has previously been seen as freak. That's cool. Great. Hi, everyone. I'm back <laughs> to wrap this up. I really uh, thank so much, uh, Kate and Dan and Neelam and everyone who joined us in this new weird digital space of Zoom. It's a, such an amazing conversation to have and to get to be with everyone here for this is fantastic. Um, thanks so much. Thank you all. Be well, be safe. <laughs> thanks, Kate. The Performance Lab podcast was brought to you by Contemporary Performance Network in association with the Sarah Lawrence College Theatre MFA program. For more information, please visit our websites at www.contemporaryperformance.com or www.sarahlawrence.edu.